Let us look together now at Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We began looking at this chapter two weeks ago and endeavored to lay some groundwork and background for this chapter. And we want to look at it more closely now. And we'll read verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. May the Lord bless his word and give us grace as we look at it here together. We have here in the opening words of this section the basic command, the basic duty that is being dealt with That's in the first part of the verse, the first sentence. In the last part of the verse, and in the verses following, we have various arguments, reasons, and incentives to obey the command that is given at the beginning of verse 1. So let's look at both of these as we have time to do so here today. We begin simply with the duty. And let's look at it very simply and consider, first of all, to whom the command is given. It is addressed to every soul. Every soul. In the context of this letter to the saints at Rome, every soul means every Christian, every believer, every member of the church at Rome to whom the letter was written. So what we have here is a Christian duty. This is a duty for believers to follow. It is furthermore a an individual duty, every soul. This is something that each one in Rome was to take personally. And it's interesting to note our our English language doesn't work uh, quite this way, but uh, or, or quite as as neatly and consistently. But the verb uh, to be subject is in the singular. It, it's, it's speaking of the, the personal duty of every Christian. And so we should take this duty personally today. I emphasize this point that the command is given to the believers because it is significant that there is no command No imperative given here to unbelievers or to the civil rulers. The command is to every believer. Now, whatever uh, the civil rulers may learn from this passage about their responsibility is indirect. The passage is not addressed to them. And whatever any unbeliever in any position may learn from this passage is indirect. That is not the purpose of the passage. The purpose of the passage is to speak to Christians. Christians as citizens of 
and earthly realm. So that's to whom the command is given. Now, who are the objects of the command, or or what does the command have to do with? Well, it has to do with higher powers. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. And from the context of what is said here subsequently, it's clear that civil government is in view. office holders in civil government at various levels. And that's why it's spoken of in the plural, higher powers. In Paul's context here, this would include Jewish authorities in Palestine when Paul was in that region. We see him actually fairly late in his life and ministry, acknowledging the authority of the Jewish leaders while he was in Judea. When he appears before the Jewish Supreme Court or the council, which we understand to be the Sanhedrin, their high court, he says, uh, I... you're familiar with with the story and how that this this man commands Paul to be hit on the mouth and Paul said that's not lawful God will smite you and so on and they that stood by said revilest thou God's high priest then said Paul I knew not brethren that he was the high priest for whatever reason Paul didn't realize that was the capacity of the man who commanded him to be hit. Perhaps Paul's eyesight was so bad he he couldn't tell who was who. There's some argument for that. But he goes on to say, For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. And in the Jewish uh, culture, the high priest was the highest office culturally. And so Paul recognizes his responsibility when he's in Palestine to submit to the authority that's there. For Paul, it would include not only Jewish authorities in Palestine, but Roman authorities in, in the Roman Empire, wherever he traveled and was under their jurisdiction. That would include a governor, someone like uh, Felix or Festus. It would include Herod, who was sort of an in-between family of, of kings, all the way up to Caesar in Rome. All the various layers there. Those are the higher powers. As we apply this to ourselves today, We likewise have several layers of higher powers over us in this world. We have local or city government. In our structure then beyond that, we have county government and then state government and then federal government. Those are the basic layers of higher powers And I hope that we can stop at federal government (laughs) and not have to ever include global government. I believe you can make a, a solid biblical case against global government. In Acts 17, we read that God has ordained the nations and their boundaries And in the great effort of man at the Tower of Babel to institute a global kind of government, God destroyed that effort 
miraculously. That was not his plan. Neither his revealed will nor his secret will. May God deliver us from global government today. But we do have various layers of higher powers over us. These are the ones to whom submission is commanded. Now, let me point this out. There are no qualifiers here, such as let every soul be subject unto good Christian higher powers, or let every soul be subject unto the higher powers when they govern in a way that you agree with or that you find convenient, and so forth. There's no kind of qualification given here. Now, the question arises, are there exceptions? And are there limitations to what is commanded of us here? I believe there are. But it is noteworthy that we have to go to other passages to find the limitations and the exceptions. This passage gives us the rule. And we must keep the, the rule in view more than the exceptions. <clears throat> this passage doesn't deal with difficult Questions that arise, we have to look to other passages for those. Complex situations and circumstances and so on are not addressed here. Here we simply have the general basic rule. There is, perhaps now more than ever, a danger of being preoccupied with the exceptions so that the rule given here is almost lost. And that would be a great mistake. I sometimes wonder if if some people come to Romans 13 and, and read something like this. Let every soul correct the higher powers. <laughs> or let every soul overthrow the higher powers. Let every soul dictate to the higher powers and defy and uh, perhaps replace the higher powers. No, <clears throat> the command is given this is the rule this is the norm let every soul be subject unto the higher powers now god willing in other messages will address some of the difficult questions the the limitations what we might think of as exceptions but let's make sure that we have the rule firmly fixed in our mind Then thirdly, what is the action that's commanded here? It is to be subject unto. Let, it says, every soul be subject unto the higher powers. This could be translated, let every soul submit himself unto the higher powers. The idea here is not to be forced or driven into submission, but to voluntarily submit so that the action of submission springs from a disposition of submission. It's an inward grace that is required of us here. Let every soul subject himself unto the higher powers 
and the verb here, the action word, this being subject or submitted, is a term, we're told, that was used in a military context when soldiers would set up in parade formation or perhaps marching formation. And there are rows and files and they're all in their place. Each one where he belongs, following orders, marching along with others that are in step also. And this is how it should be for every believer. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. If Paul is referring here to submission only to good government and ideal circumstances, then there would hardly be a need for the command. The very fact that the command is given seems to imply and seems to presuppose rather unfavorable circumstances. Just like the circumstances that existed in Paul's own day, both under the Jews and under the Romans. The fact that the command needs to be given at all, I mean, it's, we don't hardly need to be told to submit ourselves unto good government. That, that comes naturally. That's easy. The challenge comes when the higher powers are not so good. And as those were the circumstances in Paul's own day, so it is the circumstance in our day. And so it has been the circumstance, I think we can say, in in pretty much every generation between then and now. So as we consider this duty, let's just let me just read and remind you of some of the parallel passages that are of significance. The familiar passage about the the giving or paying of, of tribute. Jesus says, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Christ acknowledges that Caesar has a legitimate claim upon some things. Not all things. He doesn't say Caesar is God. And as A.T. Robertson says, Romans 13 does not establish the divine right of kings, as the phrase has been put for many years. But he does say that Caesar does have a legitimate claim on some things. And those things we should render to Caesar. He doesn't say render to Caesar the things that are God's. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) That's another message. We're to render to God the things that are God's. Another Parallel passage or passage of significance is Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, and so on. And we'll look at that passage again, Lord willing, in another message. Let me give one other passage that addresses this subject and states it in similar terms. And that's First uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse 13 and following. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And, and there's a high motivation given to us there. It's for the Lord's sake. It's for God's sake, for God's glory. 
that we submit ourselves unto every ordinance of man, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So there's multi-layers there. There's the king and then there's governors and at various levels. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Well, we don't want to go into an exposition of all those passages. We'll look at them somewhat in another message, God willing. But let's get firmly fixed in our minds the basic duty here. We are to submit ourselves unto civil authority, higher powers in this world. The last part of the verse gives us the first reason. And there are several in these following verses. We'll just look at this first one. It begins with the word for. Here is an explanation. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. This is really one and the same argument here, but it's given in two ways, in two forms. The first is sort of an abstract form, for there's no power but of God. The second is the more actual and concrete reality, and that is the powers that be are ordained of God. So let's look at it in in both ways here. We are to submit ourselves to earthly government, civil government, because God himself has established it. There's no power but of God. Civil government, in other words, is of divine origin. It isn't something that man dreamed up. It is not, as we say, a human construct. It is of God. It is his gift to us that we need. No doubt we can see this established as early as the ninth chapter of the book of Genesis where God established after the flood, immediately after the flood, that whoever murders a man, his life must be taken. That's chapter 9 of the book of Genesis and verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And that is at least the... uh, the beginning of civil government as far as any specific mention in Scripture is concerned. Civil government is as much an institution of God as the family or the church. We might debate what government would have looked like without the fall, you know, hypothetically, Some would say there wouldn't have been any government. Everyone would be governing themselves. But wherever there is a society of people, there needs to be order and structure. I think we can argue and say there would have been some kind of of order and rank and leadership and so on, even in an unfallen world, had the population grown uh, without the fall. Certainly after the fall, the need for human government is manifested. Human depravity makes human government a necessity. Genesis 9, 6 there is, is again, a classic text for that. There's no power but of God. God has ordained civil government. He has instituted it. He has ordered it. Lawlessness, anarchy, is not God's revealed will for man. 
Civil government is God's revealed will. So much so that we can say, according to this verse before us, that a hostile attitude toward civil government in general is a hostile attitude toward the God who established it. This is always our challenge to keep God in view, in all matters, and especially in a matter like this. When civil government is flawed and it is run by sinful men and must of necessity, therefore, have some degree of corruption and injustice and so on, remember, God has established the concept of civil government. And to honor God, we must honor civil government and be submitted unto the higher powers. So the duty of submission to civil government is grounded in the duty of submission to God because there's no power but of God. Then looking at it from this other perspective, not just the ideal concept, but from the actual reality, we have this, the powers that be are ordained of God. And Paul is obviously speaking of the times in which he himself lived, or at least that it includes his own arrangements and circumstances. The authorities that are currently in existence The ones that be, the ones that are here and functioning now are included in the responsibility of this verse. It's as if Paul says this includes Caesar. He is the power that exists and we must consider him as ordained of God. And of course this gets very challenging to us today in some ways because we know from history that an argument could be made that Caesar's position was not a legitimate position. It was not too many years or maybe just a generation or two earlier that Julius Caesar had subverted the Roman Republic and made it uh, an empire and himself the emperor. If I understand what Paul is telling us here, he's saying, yes, the powers that are here now, the ones that presently exist and hold authority, are ordained of God Even our Lord Jesus seems to to point to that when he says, whose image is on the coin? And if Caesar is so, so well established in power that his image is on the coin, then he must be the powers that be, or the, 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 the power in earthly things, the highest earthly power that's in existence. We should consider even corrupt leaders as legitimate office holders in as much as Caesar was considered a legitimate office holder in that day. We should consider whoever occupies office as ordained of God. And we see several examples of this, uh, especially in the Old Testament, God raised up Pharaoh. There's, there's a civil authority that God raised him up in that position. And with that authority, of course, the rest of the sentence is so that he might show his power in him. Thank the Lord. There's a couple of passages uh, in the book of Jeremiah that are relevant here. And again, this is even in an Old Testament context. God speaks of these nations that 
Babylon had taken over, which included Israel or Judah. And he says, I have made the earth and man and the beast that are upon the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm and have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. I gave it to who I wanted to, to who it seemed right and proper in my sight. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. And all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the very time of his land come. And then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. So the Lord is the one who sets up Nebuchadnezzar for and his dynasty for three generations. And then they fall and God raises up others. But the civil government's ordained of God. That, that this, is, this certainly speaks to that among other things. And he says, all nations shall serve him. Oh, I read that. And it shall come to pass that the nation and kingdom which will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation will I punish, saith the Lord, with the sword and with the famine and with the pestilence until I have consumed them by his hand. And then a little later here we read more specific instructions given to God by Jeremiah to the people of of Judah. He says, go into captivity and seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives. That's an Old Testament way of saying submit unto the powers that be. Babylon in this case. He even goes so far as to say, pray unto the Lord for it. Pray for the peace of Babylon, in other words. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. That must have been quite a a, a shocking statement for the people of Judah to hear. Pray for God to bless Babylon with peace because as long as Babylon has peace you as its captive will have peace in some measure and of course the familiar statements in the book of Daniel about God uh, sets up kings and takes kings down but the fact that there are kings is ordained of God that's the the point that I want to make in reading these passages He changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that have knowledge and so on. And that's repeated uh, in this way in chapter 4. Here is Nebuchadnezzar after his seven years in an exile of his own, uh, living out in the field like an animal. He says that he wants the living to know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of heaven, or I'm sorry, in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. God has ordained civil government even if he puts providentially a base character in that position. To occupy that office. The office itself is of God. A very relevant New Testament passage are the words of our Lord to Pontius Pilate in John chapter 19, verse 11. In response to Pilate saying to him, Don't you know that I have authority to crucify you or to release you? And Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Pilate, 
Yes, you've been put in a position of authority on this earth. But that's only because God put you there. And you should acknowledge that. You, you should understand that and recognize that. We should therefore consider those under whose government we are to be appointed by God, determined by God, ordained of God. Now, let me make four observations on this verse. Number one is, Paul is addressing real circumstances under which he and his readers lived. He's not addressing a hypothetical, ideal circumstance that no one has ever lived under on this earth. Human government is always corrupt because the people who occupy the offices are corrupt sinners. So Paul isn't addressing some ideal situation here. He's addressing the reality under which generation after generation lives, regardless of the form of government. The second observation is this. Corrupt civil government is the expectation all throughout the New Testament. Our Lord, again, in Luke 18, spoke of the unjust judge, and that's not some unusual case. It's that as if that's what is to be expected. And Paul expects the same when he writes to the Corinthians and says, you know, solve your problems among yourselves. Don't go to some unbelieving judge. It's, again, as if the expectation is and will always be that judges are sinners, unjust, corrupt, liable to be bribed and rule unjustly. Un friendliness to the gospel of Christ is the expectation throughout the New Testament. It's what we expect from the world. It's what we expect from the higher powers in this world. We enter the kingdom through much tribulation, and some of that tribulation comes at the hands of civil authorities. The book of Acts makes that clear in case after case. James says this, adds this perspective. He says, Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats. He's assuming that these rich men are unbelievers, but they have power and influence, and they haul the believers into court because they know the court is going to rule against the believers. Peter adds this word. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. But on their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. On this behalf. So Peter here acknowledges the the place of civil government to deal with murderers and thieves and the like. And he says, expect to be brought before courts. But make sure that it's it, it is not 
for the wrong reason. But he assumes that the right reason will will never go away and that the opposition to the truth will always be present. Now, how are we to interpret silence? Well, let me, let me explain the silence first of all. The silence is there's no direct instruction in Scripture on how to improve the powers that exist. No direct instructions in Scripture on how to improve the corrupt powers and corrupt politicians and corrupt judges and so on. Now, earthly government does improve some when the influence of the gospel increases. But it comes indirectly. It comes as a byproduct. It's never the principal goal. And I don't see any case anywhere in the New Testament for a direct approach that says, okay, let's see if we can improve the powers that be and and here's how we're going to do it and here's the scripture that, that lays it out for us. Paul doesn't say, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers But these higher powers are going to improve as the culture becomes Christianized. And to to help speed that along, we need to start a movement to install a new and better Caesar. There's nothing remotely like that in the New Testament. So how are we to interpret that? Well, our focus is to be the gospel, the influence of the gospel. Thank the Lord helps lift society as a whole and civil government as a whole. But that comes as the fruit, the the incidental and not the primary Now, we should say this, living under the form of government that Paul lived under, there was no opportunity to replace Caesar. (laughs) Paul didn't go into Rome uh, when he finally got there with this agenda to let's, let's get a better Caesar in place. No, he goes in as a prisoner and doesn't have much of a voice. The structure of the Roman world did not give opportunity for that. But as we endeavor to faithfully apply this passage to ourselves, we understand that we live in a... uh, under a civil government at various levels that allows us a voice. Though it is a a crumbling remnant of a constitutional republic, we still have some opportunity to vote and to influence, and unquestionably we should use that opportunity faithfully that is good Christian citizenship what I'm saying is this we should have realistic biblical expectations and recognize the prevalence of evil in the world and the prevalence of corruption in civil government until Christ comes again 
There will be no utopia on earth until Christ comes again. There will be no heaven on earth until Christ comes again. That's what I see laid out here in the New Testament. William S. Plummer in the 1800s wrote these words, and he's he's here in the um, southern United States. I'm not I can't remember which state he was from, but he says this: "True, it is a great comfort to live under a government which had its origin in truth and justice, but it is doubtful." whether there are many such on earth. Meanwhile, submission to all laws that are not wicked is clearly a duty. End quote. Well, uh, I've taken longer on that observation. Let me move on to number three. Sometimes it's difficult to know who the legitimate power is. And, And I mentioned even Caesar himself As an example of that, A.T. Robertson again says, Paul is not arguing for the divine right of kings or for any special form of government. He's not saying, you know, monarchy is better than a republic or vice versa. But he says, Paul is arguing for government and order. Nor does he oppose here... Robertson goes on into the exceptions. Nor does he oppose here revolution for a change of government, but he does oppose all lawlessness and disorder. And we'll say more about that hopefully in another message. It is sometimes very difficult to know who a legitimate power is. What about those who steal elections? Or what about those who violate the laws of the Constitution, let's say, in our case, and make edicts that clearly conflict with the the, the documents that they are sworn to uphold? Then who is the legitimate power, the person in the office or the the document to which they are bound. Here's my answer, and a very short answer. There are many situations like these that will simply have to be addressed on a case-by-case basis. As much as we want some rules and hard and fast uh statements and and see it all in black and white, I don't think it's possible to write a kind of encyclopedia that answers every difficult case and covers every possible uh, scenario that might possibly ever arise. And I think we have to leave some room to say difficult Circumstances must be addressed on an individual basis using our very best uh, understanding of the Word of God as is relevant in those cases. And I'll probably say that more than once here in Romans 13. Well, I'll close with this fourth observation briefly. It seems to be in the very DNA and the very psyche of Americans that we have this patriotism and we have some well-known statements from some of our founding fathers of the nation who said things like, Give me liberty or give me death. And I'm afraid we have to be willing to challenge everything by the word of God. Is, are the famous words of Patrick Henry 
square with the word of God? If so, where? Live free or die. Man, that stirs your blood, doesn't it? Is that taught in the New Testament? If so, where? Resisting tyrants is a duty. Rebellion sometimes is a duty. Where is that taught in the New Testament? It wasn't taught. In fact, the opposite is taught for Christians under persecution. Pray for them that persecute you. Bless them that persecute you. And sometimes it's a family or a neighbor. Sometimes it's civil government. This was not even the the, the attitude of the Jews in the Old Testament when they went into Assyrian captivity and Babylonian captivity. God's instruction to them was, I just read some of the passages there in, in Jeremiah, submit to the king of Babylon. Oh, but we're going to lose our freedom. The Lord said, go. Don't resist. And again, that's under the Old Testament. How much more in the New Testament do we see this requirement to be subject unto the higher powers? So this observation amounts to this. Our patriotism must be submitted to the word of God. And beloved, that's that's painful for this preacher and for many of us I know. Things are always complicated. But this is the rule. Civil government is from God. And each of us are to submit ourselves to it. We'll have to let it rest there. <clears throat> May God help us.